0: There was also the other lesson in there of hey, you can you can pay professionals to do certain work. They do a lot quicker than you. They will probably do a better job than you. And uh, you know you get all of your time back. And I think one of the things that uh, people don't do with investing is they value their own time. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations
1: with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests. Every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent, So that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get Thanks for listening, and now let's get invested. Hi friend Fighters, are you fit? Do you work out daily and have a regular exercise regime that ensures that you have the strength and resilience to go the distance and enjoy a long and healthy quality of life? Or do you start out with good intentions, but the pressures and urgencies of life give them away and before you know it, the only signs of your gym membership are the monthly debit on your credit card. And what about your property investment? Are you property fit? with a similar dedicated plan and process supported by daily disciplines, or are you more of a slap-happy occasional part-time investor that fits things in around the demands of your work and your family commitments? Being property fit is a good description of what it takes to be a successful investor. And it also happens to be the title of today's special guest, Luke Harris's second book. Now, one of the things I'd love to do here on Getting Invested is to dig into our guest's past and impact their own investment journeys to uncover what they've done, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what they've learned, and how has this impacted on what they're now doing today. And today's special guest is a great example of exactly this. He's an active investor who, like yours truly, has made a lot of investment mistakes along the way, but these have become the greatest source of learning and improvement that has ultimately been documented in books that you can learn from. And this is a key point because many investors make a mistake and then rather learning from it, they throw their hands up in the air at the first problem or issue and then walk away from investing and write it off as a bad thing rather than heed the lesson and become a better investor as a result of it. So to get you in the mood, let me share a brief modified extract from chapter two of Luke's second book, Property Fit, that actually recaps key elements of his first book, Let's Get Real, on why most investors fail. All day, people tell me I have my goals documented. I know my dreams, dates, and dollars, as Luke outlined in his first book. But what property should I be looking at? How do I know what to do next? What I'm actually hearing is that investors want to try to fast-track the process. They want to go from A to Z without doing B, C, D, E, and all the other steps. People come in and say, oh, I've got $100,000 in equity and I want to be a developer. Or I've done this course to do flips and wraps and whatever other strategies are out there. Or I'm 58 years old and I've done a course in renovations and that's what I want to do. I don't even own a hammer, but that's what I want to do. Hold up there are a lot of people who think they've got a silver bullet for property success. It reminds me of when I was starting out and I felt that people needed someone to put all these ideas into context. They're reading pages and pages of literature about it and watching investors on television talk up the market and then trying to find out what suits them, all the while getting sucked in by spruikers. Of course, there are lots of weird and wonderful tactics out there for people to try their hand at but which ones actually work? And what do most investors actually need? The thing is, most people investing in property in Australia start out the same way. They collect some money in cash, equity, or a self-managed superannuation fund and head out looking for a deal. That perfect property that will help them to build wealth and achieve all their goals. This short-sighted vision is often why many investors fail to get the results that they actually desire. When challenged by things out of their control, they simply forget about the end goal and never reach point B. Often, that's because their point B was never clearly articulated in the first place. This pivotal concept provided the premise for Luke's first book, Let's Get Real. In this book, the focus was was on you as the investor, clarifying your goals and working out your why, just as Luke and I did. As mentors, We also work on your plans and your mindset, which can each influence your success as a property investor. So most investors plan to fail because they fail to plan. Luke's book recognized that we all have different dreams, desires and goals in life, and that to achieve those exceptional results, you need to apply different pathways rather than a single right way. Not everyone needs a $10 million property portfolio. So why aim for it? Remember, it's the result you're ultimately after, not the property itself. When you let your emotions get in the way, that's where you become unstuck. After 20 years of buying property, Luke's message is that there are are no silver bullets. I mean, some silver bullet strategies do work for some people some of the time, but it's more about doing it the right way with the right processes in place and creating a pathway to profit that is slower and steadier, rather than reactive and rushed. We can tell you that the magic unicorn property simply doesn't exist either. And this fundamental fact is what separates professional property investors with long-term sustainable wealth from those who are simply out dabbling in property investments and hoping that it all works out. Remember, we're here to talk about investing, not speculating. We're here to talk about long-term wealth creation, not making a quick buck or trying to buy low and sell high and pick the market. So let's go back a step. The key message from Luke's first book was to work out your why and why your why actually matters. Essentially, your why is everything. Luke encourages you to think about his first book as a why-to guide so that your investment success is more about good planning and tactical execution rather than a lack of access to technical information. He also wrote the book to give you a chance to learn about your emotional self and to master all of those emotions that may hold you back from achieving your goals. Because if you're going to become a property investor, you'll need to strap yourself in and ask yourself some tough questions first. So let's do that. So before you skip to the part where you consider the best property fit for you, you'll need to work out your property investment profile. Think of it as a self-assessment exercise that you must fill out to see which strategies are actually going to suit you best. Now, Luke highly advises you to think carefully about where you sit, because these responses will help to guide your best fit in property investing. So firstly, what's your risk profile? How risky is an investment based on your age, financial position, and knowledge, as well as your actual understanding of the strategy? Remember that what suits one investor can be a complete disaster for another, and your risk profile will likely change as you increase your education and your experience. Next, what's your asset position? Depending on the strategy, you'll likely need some sort of security door for a lender. This doesn't always have to be another property, but this is typically the most attractive to lenders. Often, the more risk involved in the strategy, the more security the lender requires. Thirdly, what's your cash position? You're going to need some skin in the game. So depending on the strategy, you'll either need a small amount of capital to get started or you might need access to lots of capital. Regardless, Luke always recommends having good buffers in place for a rainy day because we promise you that it does rain and you will need access to cash. Fourthly, what's your exit strategy? Successful investing takes time, energy, and patience, but you need to have a very clear idea of your exit strategy before parting with your money in any investment. Of course, for most people, this is one of the hardest things to calculate because there are many unknowns. However, this is a crucial component to successful investing. And lastly, how much time do you have? Property investing can be an almost entirely passive investment, partly hands-on or an all-hands-on deck game. How much time you have available will be an important factor to determine which strategies are best for your personal situation. As for time, this is not something you should try to squeeze into your current lifestyle. Investing in property is something that needs clear and focused time if you're looking for the best results. You either have the time to do it properly or you don't. So as you can hear, Luke and I have a very similar approach to property because property is just the vehicle and the means to your end as it's more about the principles, the processes and the people that you need to embrace to achieve sustainable success over the long term. So if you're serious about achieving financial freedom through property, grab yourself a copy of Luke's book, Property Fit at www.propertyfitbook.com.au And to get you in the mood, part one of my great chat with Luke unpacks his own personal property investment journey. As you're about to hear, with big dreams, persistence, and a can-do attitude, Luke Harris now has over two decades of property investment experience and success, and he's built an enviable property portfolio and acquired an extraordinary depth and breadth of experience across business, property, and investing along the way. Now successfully established, again, like yours truly, Luke and I share an ambition to help you and other investors to grow significant wealth through property, helping you to fulfill your own dreams and your ambitions. And Luke does this through his business, The Property Mentors, a Melbourne-based agency that helps you develop the skills, mindset, and knowledge to grow your property portfolio. And in a similar vein, if you'd like an hour of power to talk with me personally on any questions, queries, or issues you'd like to discuss about your investment strategy, finance or property portfolio delivery, whether you're you're an aspiring investor or an experienced investor with a substantial property portfolio, just jump on knowhowproperty.com.au, hit the purple book appointment button in the top right-hand corner, then click on the Let's Zoom Deep Dive Meeting with Bushy one-hour option to book, book in your preferred time. And for a small investment of just 295 bucks, you can ask me anything you want, About property for a full 60 minutes. In the meantime, enjoy part one of my great conversation with Luke Harris. Hi Freedom Fighters. Now at the time of this recording, the property market's enjoying a once in a 30 year boom. And for investors, there's never been a better time to supercharge your portfolio. But just like we approach our personal fitness, there's a proven process to getting your property investments into shape Achieve peak performance. So, to discuss this, we're joined by Luke Harris, author of his recently released second book, Property Fit, that shows you how to get your property portfolio in shape for financial freedom. So, welcome and let's get invested, Luke.
0: Thanks, Pushy. Great Great to have you on board, Michael.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed your most recent book, uh, which we'll get into uh, shortly, but Uh, for those amongst the listeners who don't know who you are, mate, can you start by telling us who you are, what you do, and most importantly, why you do what you do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I started a business called The Property Mentors uh, about eight years ago now to teach people about investing in property, uh, I guess with a bit of a twist. There's a lot of investors out there that are trying to make a quick buck, so I went through my own property journey and realize that there's a, a lot of different ways to do property, as, as you don't understand, Pushy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people trying to do property, and really I was looking for a way to get out there and, and get the results, but really have a bit more structure around what I was doing. So um, after investing for 21 years, I've now got a, a system and a process that I follow, and really to get people to understand it, how to do it for the long term, rather than just trying to go out there and hope for the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, brand, which is something sadly missing given that uh, 95% of investors f- focus on the property and what they ignore at their own peril is the, the principles, the process and the people they need to surround themselves with to really achieve any level of sustainable success. But mate, uh, we'll dig into that in some depth uh, as we get going. What, where I'd love to start, if you can is yes, just to take us through your life journey so far and sort of take us through where you've invested your time, energy and money. Uh, what have been the highs, the lows, the learnings and how's that taking you to where where you are today?
0: Well, look, at, I can give you a long story or a short story, but yeah. uh, we'll go somewhere, we'll give go us somewhere, somewhere long in the middle. One. Yeah, um, look, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I, I, from a very young age, I was always, uh, I guess, quite entrepreneurial. If you ask my parents, um, uh, bless them, they... Uh, They've uh, put up with quite a bit over the years. Um, I was out there as a, as a 10 or 12-year-old uh, selling stuff from mum and dad's kitchen out on the street. Uh, it was what, the equivalent what, of having, having a lemonade stand, I guess. What, um,
1: flogging the stuff out of the kitchen to sell it to the... Yeah, selling
0: whatever <laughs> I could. I, uh, dad's got a really good story of me uh, digging up uh, Australian grass trees out of the backyard and I sold them in the local newspaper and he'd come home from work one day and there were people digging them up and I'd actually sold them in the local newspaper. I think I was about nine or 10 years old. Uh, so from a very young age, I think I, I kind of, uh, I, I guess I was always looking at other ways of doing things. Uh, since pocket money wasn't given to us, we had to work for it. So I was out there washing the cars, mowing the lawns, doing what I could and uh, you know, always sort of pretty active in trying to make money because then I could buy more lollies. Uh, we walked down the down the street and got lollies, or we'd go and buy fish and chips. You get two dollars worth of. Chips, minimum chips. It was you
1: yeah, get quite a lot of chips for two bucks back then, mate. I'm with and, you. So, uh, it's uh, yeah. it's a amazing how parallel. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, and I, <laughs> I don't want to declare, but in, it, well, same thing at my age. We had no oh. no um, pocket money whatsoever. So we used to uh, ride around the neighbourhood, finding empty bottles and and weeding yeah. gardens oh. and all the rest of it. But uh, here's the thing, mate. I've got to share this with you. I, I used to be able to buy a bag of lollies for a cent. So that, that gives you a okay. bit of a hint of how long ago it was, mate. But uh, oh, I interrupt the story. Keep going, mate. It's, uh... it's
0: rough, roughly the same age, but maybe a year or two in between. <laughs> um, it's, uh, my, uh, my pop, one of my granddad's um, – lived down in Bunbury two hours south of Perth and um, every time we'd go down to Bunbury to see them, uh, he would have all of his Coke bottles saved up. We'd get 15 cents for every single one and uh, I think I used to get money for the brown beer bottles as well and there was certainly quite a lot of those and uh, when the grandkids would come down, I was the oldest of all the grandkids so we'd all pack all four of us in the car. We'd drive down to trade all the bottles in. He had a, a really old rusty Gemini and uh, we put them in every nook and cranny of that car and cash them in and we'd get $20 to split between four of us. We'd go shopping and buy a new toy. So that was, that was a lot of fun as, as kids. And I think that, you know, without really knowing it, uh, taught me, uh, you know, about other ways to make money other than just, just, uh, working for it. And, uh, I remember uh, also going into the equivalent of Harvey Norman. I think it was a retrovision or something back then. Yeah. And, um, uh, he, he said uh, he was buying a new toaster or kettle I think it was and he said look do you realize you, you don't have to pay the price on the shelf you can actually ask them for a discount and he said oh, I'll give you thirty dollars for the the kettle instead of 35 and he actually got it and I thought geez that's pretty good you don't have to pay the price on the on the shelf so little things like that that I don't I didn't take much notice of at the time but I realized that the world of money is is not as black and white as people think. Yep. Um, so I guess from from a young age I I did things like paper rounds and um, as soon as I was allowed to, uh, being 14 years and six months old, <laughs> I got a job at uh, Hungry Jacks, and uh, I actually caught the train from the local train station into Perth CBD, and I remember the train ticket was a dollar ten each way. And because mum and dad wouldn't drive me into work a little bit rude but uh, they wouldn't drive me into the city um, and dollar um, 10 on the train and then uh, it was probably about a 25 30 minute train tip, uh, trip into town for a three-hour shift earning five dollars21 an hour so that was that was my first job but I was over the moon to get that job I didn't care if it was flipping burgers or whatever it was but it was a job awesome um, I did that did that for some time and then I relocated out to the suburban um uh hungry jacks and then continued to work there for some time had an amazing time there because everyone at hungry jacks was my age and you know give or take a year or two and it was just a fun place to be um we worked hard but we had a lot of fun at the same time but um i guess from from that age i i I didn't really enjoy school i hated school actually i i got uh, into detention and you know got expelled and i was always in the naughty corner for wearing the wrong school uniform or just being a, being a brat basically not a huge amount <laughs> change but I certainly wasn't I certainly wasn't the the academic type uh, never been uh, I never enjoyed really sitting in a classroom and being told to learn something I didn't want to learn yeah. I didn't know the reasons why at the time but I just didn't want to learn stuff that I didn't care about yeah um and I, I do believe that uh, you know that the education system is a little bit outdated for what the world that we're in now but yeah. that's a whole another podcast i'm sure i agree um but uh yeah look so i did that and i left i left school at 16 because i wanted to uh, i wanted to go and get a, a job as an electrician i thought well it okay. looks like something fun uh and i wrote about 80 or 85 letters to local electricians trying to find a job as an apprentice i was willing to do anything to get a job uh and uh, unfortunately the mining boom in wa hadn't started yet not to the extent that it did in the mid-2000s and uh nobody got back to me i couldn't get a job i did a trial for one day the guy was not a pleasant man to 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 be around so i certainly (laughs) didn't uh, follow through on that we just didn't get along and um you know from from that point i was um i found a job with a, a local security company doing electronic security and i thought well if i can do that for a little while maybe an electrician will hire me so i left school to do that uh, and i actually got a a traineeship at the time uh which was a full-time job but uh slightly lower rates than hungry jacks and i was getting four dollars 71 per hour Good this is back in 1996 1997 so i did that for a little while uh quickly changed jobs and got a, a job with another security company a slightly higher pay i think my total Salary package was $11,000 a year, but again, I was I was over the moon because it meant that I could afford a car and you know got my first car and really you know got out there in the real world, as they say. Yeah. And then it wasn't long after that I had a really good relationship with my with my boss at my company, um, and uh, I said to him, look, Peter, I want to make more money. What do I do? And he says, well, if you want to, you can go and install some security alarms on the weekend, and we'll pay you the same rate we pay our subcontractors. And I thought, that's a pretty good deal. I'll put some roof racks on the car and go and do that on the weekend. I'll work during the week at the office and then, you know, I can I can go out and make some more money. And I did that and after a few months of doing that, I thought I'm making almost half my paycheck just by working on a Saturday. Yeah. So I went up to Peter and said, mate, can I do this full time? I want to become a contractor. And he said, look, if you really want to, you just have to hire somebody to do your job in the company and we'll let you go and do that. So very accommodating, I think he realized that I wasn't going to stick around if he didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Yeah. so he thought might as well keep him in the company, so I did that and then it wasn't long after that that I, I thought well why am i why am I subcontracting for this company? I'm earning some good money now, but why don't I go and get my own customers? You're smart enough. all you have to do is get some people that want some security and then you know all of a sudden you've got your own customers so I, I turned that into a brand and at 19, I, I set up a business called A1 Secure Solutions um, purely because I couldn't register the name without sticking A1 in front of it.
1: So, <laughs> so it's on top so, of the uh, yellow pages or something, is that the top idea? top of the yellow
0: pages, that's it. <laughs> Back when you had to pay for yellow pages, as I don't think I ever got a phone call from the yellow pages. Well, well, before Google really took off. So, yeah, look, after, after that, I, I thought, I'm going to go and get my own customers. So I ran some ads in the local paper. And in between contracting to this company, I started getting my own customers and very quickly realised that I had a little business there. And uh, I started hiring some staff and bought some some extra vehicles. And, you know, in my 19, 20, you know, I was a young teenager turning into a 20-year-old, uh, I had a company and I was out there running my own business. So it sort of wasn't really much by design, but it was more the fact that I, I didn't want to do certain things, so I took the alternative route. Yeah. And uh, I think for me, really, that was, a, I guess, a, a defining moment in in uh, in my life, moving out of the the full-time workforce as a 19-year-old and starting a business at 19 without really having any experience on how to run a business, how to structure it, um, how we, to fund it.
1: Yeah, we're the? because uh, there's a lot of... Confidence, I'm hearing, in just just and or or maybe a mix of naivety thrown in there as well, perhaps. But w- yep. where where did that sort of uh, self confidence come from to say, "Well, I'm just going to go and have a crack"?
0: I don't know if there's a specific thing that I could link that back to, but I know that one of the the other things that I was doing while I was out the front of Mum and Dad's, you know, selling. Stuff out of their kitchen. Uh, I would also drive around. I drive around. I would walk around the streets when they had the local rubbish collections. Yeah. And I thought, that Mum and Dad will drive us to the shops and wherever we, wherever we went in the car. And I'd see more of the suburb, or I'd get on my bike and just ride around as you did as, as a kid. And I thought, there's perfectly good chairs there. There's a perfectly good table. Why are they throwing that away? Because we, you know, we're a family of six. Mum and Dad had had four kids. And, you know, we, we didn't have a, a luxury lifestyle. Um, yeah. We had, a, had a, a a modest house in the suburbs. It was a nice place. Uh, it, you know, we didn't have a pool like everyone else did. I always thought mum and dad were, were, you know, really mean and, you know, why didn't we have a pool? <laughs> um, very spoiled, some of our friends were. But, you know, I went around the suburbs and I thought, why are people throwing these things away? So I started collecting it all and filling up the garage with it. And after a while, I, I my um, dad just thought, oh, this is just Luke. He's just crazy. Let him do what he does. I think they just, they just gave up after a while. And, um, and uh, I eventually borrowed a trailer from my auntie, and she let me take it to the local swap meet. And I think I was 12 when I first started doing that. Dad would get up. Dad was a marathon runner. He always um ran marathon runs and uh, Perth fun run and a lot of things so he was very committed in in his uh i guess vision for what he wanted for his his running career yeah and um really dad just got up at five o'clock in the morning drove me to the to the swap mart at the local shopping center unloaded the the trailer and all my gear and i was literally standing there as a 12 year old on my own (laughs) negotiating with people on how much they were going to pay for chairs and various other bits and pieces that I picked up. So I, I would walk away from a swap mart with a couple of hundred bucks. Nice. Awesome. You know, as a 12-year-old, as a you know, and, and I would spend five or six hours there. I'd be exhausted by the end of it, covered in dust and who knows whatever else from the underground car park. But I, I had people that, you know, I remember – There was a Vietnamese guy that came up to me and uh, they know how to negotiate. Uh, And he uh, he was negotiating with me and I remember almost having an argument with this guy about the price of something. I'm like, no, $5. And he's like, no, $3. And I'm having these negotiations as a 12-year-old and really I just threw myself into it. I don't think there was any real planning behind it. But I I don't know whether that had anything to do with it. But from a young age, I guess I wanted to to get out there and make some money. And one of the reasons I, I did that is because dad was in into running did the perth fun run a number of times and um perth marathon and so forth and um a lot of people that we would see there had video cameras yeah you know this is we're talking 1992 uh 1993 right this was well before any digital stuff came out and they were still expensive um and i remember a a catalog came out local newspaper and it was 999 dollars i want this thing cut it out stuck it on the wall now I hadn't read any books about goal setting or anything. I just thought I want that. I'm going to see it every day, and eventually, that's what I did. I, I used my um, my savings from that to go and buy a video camera, and so that I could film Dad at his races. So, <laughs> you know, very, you know, not not very planned. Um, uh, you know, but uh, like I was a very very strange kid. I think looking back, um, <laughs> if I met somebody like me now, I mean, when I was that age as well, I had a little book, a little A4 book, and I would record every bit of money that I made and every bit of money that I spent. So I'd never heard of a spreadsheet, didn't, didn't understand any of that, but I wanted to know where my money was going, so I recorded it all, and um, I couldn't care less about maths in school, hated maths. But as far as budgeting and looking after my own money, I, I had every, every line. Every I had lollies in there. I had <laughs> like literally everything was documented in there. You know, I've still got these books. It's quite embarrassing to to, to, to look back at it. At the time, I hid them. I didn't want anyone to read them. I didn't want anyone to know. I thought it was embarrassing. It's um, Anyway, so I, I was very it. much into to sort of managing my finances from a young age without really any training or, or knowing why I was doing it. I just wanted to know how much I'd made each month. Yeah. Uh, So, look, I I guess that's where the business business sort of confidence came from in that I thought I've already done negotiations with people. I I was very good at negotiating with mum and dad. Um, You know, they'd give me $2 to go and wash the car and I'd negotiate to Um, $2.50. And mum wanted something from the shops and I said, well, only if I can buy 50 cents worth of lollies. And I don't know how I managed to get away with what I did you as you said before uh, mate
1: I think they saw in you who you were and there's no no point in getting in the way of that it's just keeping a loose leash on you so that you didn't get too out of control
0: I, I think so yeah they always supported <laughs> me and what I did but I mean, I'm sure they, they pulled the reins in every now and then but uh, <laughs> uh, you know they, they uh, I think they, they had a big sigh every now and then and thought well let's just look let him do his thing um, well, let, let's yeah.
1: let's swing back to uh, sort of back to sort of 1920. I think that's roughly when you you started to dip your toe in the property arena. Uh, yeah. Sort of in parallel with what you were doing professionally. Yeah. Take us through. Yeah, your property journey, because again, uh, getting your first property at 20, not, there's not too many that stump up to do that. So I'd love you to talk us through what, why property in the first place, what was what was the interest there, and then uh, to take us on the journey in terms of what you did from there and why.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, I'll just, I'll just rewind a couple of years before that actually happened to link that in. I think from about 16 onwards, um, and when I'd started working full-time, My parents had actually been invited by a friend of theirs to join Amway. Okay. And, you know, people on the call might be cringing right now, and some people may have never heard of it. But um, Amway was this multi-level marketing business, but it wasn't really focused on, in, in in hindsight, it wasn't really focused on making money. Uh, not for the not for the people joining the business, at least. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure someone was making money, but I joined it. And um, part of that process was they had motivational tapes every week that you would have to buy. They were $6 each. Yeah. Um, and a lot of books as part of the process because they wanted to have, a, I guess, a system in place for you to improve your mindset on various things. So they have, I think, book of the week or book of the month, and they would have tape of the week. That you would listen to and essentially they were motivational and educational at the same time yeah and i got a lot of lessons from that because i read a lot of books um like the magic of thinking big which is one of my favorite uh favorite books ever written and the millionaire next door and a few of those you know old books that have been around for a long time how to win friends and influence people um and i think i got a lot of lessons from that that i just would never have learned at school yeah. And the, the, the stuff that I learned from that as a 16- and 17-year-old didn't make any money out of Amway.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I sold a, my family uh, a vacuum cleaner. I sold my auntie a vacuum cleaner. She messaged me a couple of years ago said she still got it. So it must have been, must have been a good investment. It was 20 years ago. Um, and I bought one for myself because I could get more points in my Amway business. Um, so I didn't make any money, but I learned a, bus- a, a lot of business skills out of that um, and really how to influence people was really a, a, a way of how to deal with people yeah. as such. Very old book, but great still book. a lot of concepts in there that are relevant.
1: Oh, great um, book. Timeless. And,
0: yeah. oh, that's it. It is timeless. It's something you can, you can use in any market. A lot of the language is a bit out of date, but you, can, you get the message yeah. uh, through, through reading that. But um, really, to, to get into my, my first property – uh I, I was out there sort of they had this thing with amwave called dream building uh about going out there and looking and feeling and touching the things that you want to buy or once you know th- that you want out of life now the thing that was missing from that is all of the stuff that you can't look and feel and touch you know having good health care and having you know being healthy and and um you know having a healthy mind and having a healthy body yeah. um that stuff they can't motivate you with so they said go and look at yachts go look at your supercars go look at fancy houses because that's what will motivate you all and to a certain extent it did i mean i was 16 17 i got my driver's license and here's me as a 17 year old using my spare time driving around uh, peppermint grove in perth Adderdale, all these really expensive suburbs along the river mosman park and looking at multi-million dollar homes you know back then you know a two million dollar house wow who can afford that yeah now it's almost the median price in Perth, yeah. um, but you know, looking back at that, I got a lot of motivation by looking at these expensive houses, uh, and and looking at you know these beautiful pools and these beautiful cars and you know just the the suburbs themselves were were really nice um not that we lived in a bad suburb but we certainly didn't live in the best suburbs yeah and uh, you know for me that was that was motivating and you know for me to get into property I couldn't wait from the minute I I started earning an income I wanted a property yep. um you know and I loved renovating and pulling the parents bathrooms apart ripping the tiles off they came home from work one day and I was pulling tiles off the bathroom <laughs> saying we've we've got why well, if we got blue tiles they're ugly let's put new ones on and that's <laughs> Yeah, we can do that, but we need money to do those things. Um, uh, again, that's a, that's a whole other story. Um, but I think, uh, you know, getting into property was a big thing. So I, I just worked my butt off as, as a 19-year-old just running the business. I was working seven days a week and just doing everything I could to save to get that deposit together. And I'd been speaking to mortgage brokers since I was about 17 or 18. Yep. Uh, and they'd said, no, no, you can't. You, you, you know, you're not making enough money. Uh, and then when I turned 19, I thought, well, I've run my own business now. And look, at, look at my figures. I'm making good numbers. And they said, no, you, you, banks don't want to talk to you because you're self-employed. And so I, I sort of worked, worked around that and I said, look, what if I can get my parents involved? What if they go guarantor on the loan? And they said, look, if you can save up a little bit extra, we can potentially do it that way. And eventually I, I, able to, I was able to uh, get a, a bank to lend to me with uh, my parents as guarantor. Yep and uh that's how i got started I, I saved up enough for my my deposit and saved up enough for my stamp duty and unfortunately uh, around 2000 when i bought the property that's when the first home buyers grants had just started huh. and i missed out on the seven thousand dollars for my first home because my parents had to go guarantor on the loan okay. so that was a bit of a shame but at the end of the day like i tell people now you don't make all your decisions based on one yeah, uh, one one government grant. So that's that's really how I got started. Yeah, I love it. So talk us through uh, your because
1: you know obviously I've got an interest in the property journey. I'd, I'd love for you to take us through uh, your thinking, your strategy, and how your portfolio then rolled out, and the, the learnings as, as you went through, and and where that led you to property wise.
0: Yeah, for sure. Look, I, I sort of split my property journey into two sections in that the the first section is between ages 20 and 30, and then the ages of 30, let's just say 30 plus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, ages 20 to 30 was really my learning years, and uh, I bought a lot of property, made a lot of mistakes, and did a lot of things the wrong way during my 20s. And, I guess that's part of that naivety that I was just going out there to, to give it a go, wanted to make money in property, had made money in property. Yep. But really looking back at it, uh, I, I, did, I could have done things a lot differently. Um, and I guess the, the process that I went through, like, like what, how I teach people now, is that I very much took a zigzag approach. Yeah. And the, the reason I did that was very reactive. I would go out there, like a lot of investors, they're trying to make money out of property. Everyone's got good intentions. Yeah. But the issue that I found was that I was going, jumping from one thing to the next. And I was doing that because I didn't have any advisor around me. I didn't have any guidance to really direct me as to what to do next and in what order. And like a lot of people, I, I, to a certain extent, I relied on my advisors to tell me what to do when they weren't really engaged for that purpose. Yeah. So I relied on my mortgage broker, who I found on an internet chat room. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and apparently he was a guru. But it turns out that he'd changed his career halfway through and didn't didn't want to do finance anymore. So maybe he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but uh he decided he wanted to be a lawyer. And so you know through the journey I would I would do one thing based on what the media was saying, based on what property books and 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 uh, well, webinars weren't around and podcasts certainly weren't around, but anything that I could get my hands on, I was reading and soaking up. And that's not a bad thing to do. But the problem is, is there's so much information out there these days. And obviously, 20 years ago, you know, a lot less information, but now information is everywhere. There's so much information out there. Yeah. And so I was zigzagging through my portfolio, making decisions, what I thought was the best at the time, discussing with my mortgage broker, with my accountant, and hoping that they would build wealth for me, but that wasn't their job. And yep. a lot of people assume wrongly that their accountant is there to help them build wealth. Really, your accountant's there. So tax. They're, they're, they're technically called tax accountants, yep. right? We've we've shortened that to accountant, but really it's tax accountant. They're there yep. to look after your tax affairs. Yeah. Um, and even a financial planner... Uh, bless them. Um, they're uh, they're there to to give you advice, uh, predominantly around super, and to talk about your insurances and financial products. Yeah. And for some reason, the financial planning industry doesn't talk about nine trillion dollars worth of, of property. And they're not allowed missing to. Missing one. Yeah. The biggest to. asset class in the whole country. So that's totally. a whole. Again, that's a whole other podcast. But uh, I think the um the, the thing is, I was trying to rely on expert advice when I was really not talking to the right experts. And I guess the first decade of my investing was really around zigzagging and trying to find stuff that I thought was a good investment but didn't really fit into a long-term plan.
1: Yeah. So can, you, so- can you sort of break that down a bit for us? So put some colour yeah. around uh, you know, the, the properties you bought during that time and, and what you thought and then why, why they didn't quite fit the bill and, and where that took you to. I'd, I'd love you to put some uh, shape around that if you don't mind
0: yeah for sure so in in my 20s I'll, I'll give a brief summary and then come back but essentially in my 20s i did pretty much everything out of the box and in in my latest book property fit i talk about uh the um the different uh, property um investor types and we've covered that in in uh, let's get real as well yeah. in i want to tr- try everything at the buffet right <laughs> uh, and the portfolio very much looked like this i bought my first property which was a house then i went and bought an apartment then i went and bought in a mining town then i bought a development site then i did a unit development then i bought off the plan you know so the the whole portfolio was literally taking a stab at everything (laughs) and whilst i've never lost money on a property i could have done it a lot differently so really the the second property that i bought was after i moved to sydney so in 2003 i sold my security company Uh, we had three cars on the road and a bunch of staff. And I realised that you know I was sort of outgrowing Perth as a 23-year-old, getting itchy feet. Um, mum will Mum would say that I'm a Gemini and I've, I, I get bored easily. Uh, maybe I was Maybe I was bored. Who knows? If you follow the star signs, but essentially, uh, I'd always wanted to move to Sydney to have the flashy lights. I feel like you know I'm in my early 20s. I need to go and have a bit of a social life as well because I was working seven, eight, or nine days a week uh, running my own business. And I thought I'm. I'm I'm too young for this, right? I don't need this. I've made, made a bit of money. I was driving a, a brand new Holden Monaro, you know, happy days. Every, everything's good. Uh, bright bright yellow car, you know. Um, I thought I was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, look, I, I, I thought I need to balance my stress out or I'm just going to go crazy and, yeah, and, you know, get old too quick. So I did that, moved to Sydney. And the part of the reason for moving to Sydney was that uh, I went to go and get a, a loan for a second property and they said no you just you can't you're self-employed we're not interested in you you've already got one property that's enough and me not taking no for an answer i thought well screw you then i'm going to sell my business and get a job then take that (laughs) uh and that's and that's what i did i interviewed over in sydney uh flew over there a couple of times got a job moved house moved the dog the cat the other cat and the car and uh and that was it i was in sydney and uh less than 12 months after that um they relocated me to Melbourne. They said, "Look, we're um, we realise you're not really enjoying Sydney like you should be." Uh, I made that pretty clear to them, and then uh, and then they said, "Look, we're opening up a branch in Melbourne. Would you like to move?" And so uh, I did that. And around that time uh, that I arrived in Melbourne, I bought my second property in a suburb called Wembley in in WA. Uh, again, I was buying in the city that I knew, yeah. And like other investors, I know the area, so I'm going to buy there. And um, it, it is good to a certain extent because you do feel like you've got your finger on the pulse a little bit more, uh, but at the same time, there were, there were other areas around the country that I could have invested in had I known how to do that research. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I did that and uh, a friend of mine who's now passed away, unfortunately, he was a carpenter, uh, he flew over with me from Melbourne. We've, we packed up our toolboxes, we organised a renovation uh, to be done on that apartment in seven days now it didn't take seven days we did it in 11 days but from from getting the keys uh to to moving the the skanky old couch out of the place that the tenant left behind and the carpet uh the whole lot start to finish took us 11 days and i tell you i will never do an 11 day renovation ever again in my life uh we were there two o'clock in the morning oh amazing um but anyway that's what you do as a 24 year old you do bit of
1: a false um, economy there to some degree as well. It's the old, I'll uh, do oh, yeah. it myself, but then there's the, there's the cost uh, of doing so. And I'm, I'm imagining there was probably uh, quite a bit of carton currency going on. Uh, yeah, there.
0: With- there absolutely was, along with paying for his flights and accommodation. But he'd never been to Perth before, and it was a good chance for him. I, I didn't give him much time to go out. I think I gave him half an hour a day to go and explore Perth. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, really, really amazing guy, and, uh, you know, really helped me to to do that and um yeah i think there's a better story for, for a renovation which I can cover afterwards but um, I, I did that and then I guess one of the things that I was doing at the same time like I said earlier was reading lots of books and magazines and everything I could get my hands on and one of the books that I read around that time was uh, Steve McKnight's book, Zero yeah. to 100 Properties in 15 Minutes or, uh, or around that time frame <laughs> uh, and um, you know, fantastic book and a lot, I, got, I got a lot out of that and it wasn't so much about the specific properties that he'd bought it was more about the, the concept, even of of cash flow investing, yeah, and I've not really heard about that before. Um, so, for me, really learning learning about that that strategy um, it really opened up my eyes. Saying, "Oh, well, if you can buy lots of cheap properties that rent more for more than the mortgage, you can just keep buying them." That sounds great. <laughs> Problem is, uh, I think the actual title is uh, zero to one hundred and thirty in three and a half years. Yeah, I'm sort of joking around about fifteen minutes because a lot of people want to get rich quick stuff, but. Yeah. And and I did too, of course. Um, now, three and a half years uh, meant that three and a half years before he wrote the book, that's when he was buying the property. So all yeah. the prices that he listed in the book for sixty-five thousand dollars in Bendigo and Ballarat. Yeah. Three, three and a half years before he bought the book, uh, wrote the book, and then I bought it a year after it came out. So we're talking about numbers that were four and a half years out of date. Yeah. And so I got online and started looking around for these areas. I thought, what are you talking about? You can't buy anything for less than one hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to explore other areas. So I went down to Tassie, and I thought, well, I can buy a house down there for seventy nine thousand five hundred dollars, which I did. Yep. In Queenstown, and if you mentioned Queenstown <laughs> to anyone in Australia, they think about snowing and uh, you know ski resorts and all of the fun stuff. And you go, oh wow, you bought in Queenstown? No, no, not it's... Queenstown, New Zealand. Queenstown. It's Tasmania. like a
1: ghost town, mining town in Tassie, it mate. I know. It. I've driven through it.
0: Very much, very much so. And look, it's a very strange part of the world. Um, it, it looks like
1: a, it. looks like a place after the apocalypse, mate. But...
0: After the apocalypse, exactly. <laughs> and, and it did back then and it, it still does now. And uh, I, I bought that property because it was cheap and it was renting for $120 a week. So I, I figured, well, property number three, that's really cool, bought that. The contract in, in Tasmania, I think, it was two pages and I was shocked. <laughs> I said to the agent, where's the rest of the contract? And she said, that's it. Um, You know, no such thing as a Section Thirty Two like you see in Victoria. You know, hundred pages. So anyway, it was very much buyer beware, and uh, I did that. (laughs) I held that property for ten or twelve years, uh, and and got rid of it purely because it was it's more of a hassle than anything else. Yeah. And um, you know, like a lot of investors, I bought that property in my own name, and I've I've since sold down a number of properties in my own name and. You know, put them in different structures. Um, yeah. Again, it's, it's probably a, another another conversation altogether on that as well. But um, yeah. you know, that was the that was the next one, and then after that, I went and bought in Melbourne um, because Melbourne's property market in 2005 wasn't doing a great deal at all. It was actually quite dead. Yeah, no, no real media attention on Melbourne. It wasn't really doing much. Perth, meanwhile, was picking up, and yeah. mine was really starting to ramp up, and uh, property was uh, you know, Perth Perth property was the golden child. In Australia back then, and yeah, so Melbourne was, was just sitting there, sitting there, quiet, doing its thing. So that gave me an opportunity to go and explore Melbourne. And being from beachside WA, I, I started looking down the coast in, in Melbourne, and said, "What can I buy for two or three hundred thousand dollars?" And you think back now, geez, what could you ever buy in Melbourne for that price? But back then, <laughs> there were plenty of suburbs, and I've still got a, a piece of paper that I wrote down a list of suburbs, and those suburbs back then were, you know, two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. Yep. And now they're million-dollar suburbs. Yep. And um, I went and bought a, a, a really old house in a suburb called Bomb Beach. Oh, yeah. Um, beautiful, beautiful part of Melbourne, sort of heading down towards the peninsula there. Yeah, it is. And uh, and I found this house that the agent wouldn't even walk through with me. Uh, that's how bad it was. <laughs> Looking
1: um, for a more pre or something, were you, mate?
0: Well, very, well, not so much for that reason, but it was more rats, mice and who knows what else. And uh, <laughs> the front door didn't open. That's why she said, look, I can't take you through because I don't have a key for it and if I did, it probably wouldn't open. <laughs> um, went to the back of the place through all of the long lawn and, and everything else to get there. Uh, and the back pergola had fallen down above the back door. But if you kind of squeezed through, you could get in there, and it wasn't the door was open. Uh, she just said, I'm going to wait out here because, for health and safety reasons, I don't think I want to risk my life. So I said, That's fine, I'll go through and had a look through. It was a very small um, Californian bungalow type home, two bedrooms, one lounge room, and a kitchen, just four principal rooms, yep. and a, uh, a, a sort of a, a half finished bathroom. So it had been tiled, but there were no showers or. Anything in there installed, and then the uh, there was a, like an old, really old uh, washhouse type room where the uh, where the washing machine should go, and that room <laughs> it absolutely stank. Um, so I bought that property for two hundred fifty-five thousand um, dollars. they paid. It was the contract was written up for two hundred sixty thousand. The bank went out and said, "We're not going to give you that money because um, it's got no kitchen and bathroom." <laughs> And so I went back, to, went back to the agent and said, look, I can't get a loan for this because the bank said it's uninhabitable yep. and they're not going to lend on it. So I said, I'm going to go back and put a bathroom and kitchen in there. You need to give me access to do that. And I want five grand off the price so that I can do that. <laughs> and they accepted it. I didn't think they would. So you know, I went on eBay and bought a bunch of stuff um, for less than a thousand dollars. I had a second-hand kitchen in there and a, a you know a vanity unit, and we literally got it finished in a couple of weeks for a thousand bucks. Love it. The, got the valuation done again, valued at contract price, and we're all happy days and managed to settle on that property. Uh, went through the process of subdividing that block and ended up selling it in uh, twenty ten, uh, and made. It, a few hundred thousand dollars on that melbourne's market had absolutely picked up we'd been through the gfc and things were getting back to normal again so that was a good little good little investment i did plan on developing two townhouses on that block and living there um but uh plans changed as they do and you know i changed my plans like a lot of investors do yep um Geez, there's a few more after that. I can keep going. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sort of liking so, the
1: learning. And I, what, what's yeah. becoming evident here is that uh, you're as good as the next book that you read. Uh, so you're sort of uh, chasing a number of different types of approach to the exercise, but all the time building your knowledge, which uh, eventually your knowledge is going to get to a stage where you're getting clear on what the strategy needs to be. So yes,
0: I think it, it needed some reflection. I think that's what that's what didn't happen along the way. Yeah. Because what I was doing was working. I wasn't losing money. Yeah. And the properties were going up in value, and I was meeting the mortgage repayments, and I was going through the process. So I thought what I was doing was working, yeah. and to a certain extent, it was working. It certainly wasn't failing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there, there could have been better ways of doing it. But, you know, like you said, reading books and magazines and, and sort of learning as you go type of approach is what a lot of investors do because there's really no other option. They yeah. don't have somebody there offering to to guide them and mentor them through the process. So yeah. my next purchase just happened to be uh, while I was in, um, in Vegas, actually. Um, now I'll just skip back a few steps before I discuss Vegas. But... Um, When I was uh, relocated to Melbourne for the security company that I work for in Sydney, um, they relocated me to help open their branch office in uh, Doncaster. And I travelled from South Yarra to Doncaster every day. And after a while I said, look, guys, I'm putting in a lot of hours here. I'm trying to help you to establish the brand in Melbourne. But head office wasn't supporting the branch office that they'd opened up. And yeah. I said, we need some marketing help. We need admin support. We can't, I'm literally not here to do all of the admin work. And at the same time, they, they weren't spending any money on marketing. So I had to go around door knocking, trying to get business, you know, oh, from for- commercial, commercial customers. Um, I think I'd already done that back when I was about 16 or 17. I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's not my, I'm, I'm too good for that. Yeah. Um, but it really is grunt work for, for really not a lot of returns. So yeah. it's a very slow burn. And especially if I was trying to earn a commission, uh, not not the sort of business that i wanted to do so i thought if i'm going to have to be doing that sort of work i'm going to do it for myself yeah and i actually told them this time i said look i'm going to go and start my own business unless you guys support this one yeah and they you can imagine what they said they said no we're going to do it our way you don't know what you're talking about so that's fine i've started my own business again so at 20 25 i started a business called Monitored alarms so, uh, uh, the joys of uh, of running your own business were that you could go to security conferences in Vegas. And uh, I think when I was, uh, not long after I'd started the business, there just happened to be an annual conference in Vegas and conveniently I was, I was still single and got the opportunity to go and, uh, you know, explore Vegas for the first time. So, I flew over there and had an amazing, uh, very educational experience over over in Vegas and I learned a lot about what not to put money on and I learned what not to drink, what, not, what drinks not to mix with each other um, and, and I learned that, um, you know, you can lose track of time in Vegas. Um, as far as security is concerned, I'm, I'm sure it helped the business in some way but I don't know exactly what uh, What way but one of the things, funny, funny how things work out, I was actually very late, very, very late at night, uh, got home from, uh, from a night out. um i put on late night cable tv in the hotel i stayed at the luxor hotel and um and and put on this late night american tv shows and you see all the the ads and everything else that go for 20 minutes and then they had this uh this thing on uh donald trump and i thought oh wow look at this guy's like super successful and you know now we've learnt a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, as a 25-year-old, I thought, geez, this guy's done really well. He's developed this and developed that. And, you know, I, I kind of looked up to him to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, after, after that, I didn't really hear of the guy. I didn't have anything to do with him. But I remember watching that late at night. But after that show finished, there was a show on Americans that were flipping property. Yeah. And I thought, these people are going out there and they're flipping property renovating and flipping them and all this sort of thing and they don't have you know, the same tax system that we do so i thought maybe that's a good idea yep. um uh, you know don't worry about capital gains tax we'll deal with that later <laughs> and um one of the things that they were doing was that they were um they were going out there and um they were building on the back of uh, the backyard of houses and putting another house at the back about three or four weeks before i went to vegas i just put an offer in which had been accepted on a property in Seaford in Victoria because I thought if I bought, and this area was definitely uh, you know an up and up, up and coming area close to the train station and the beach and so forth. And I thought I wanted to buy a development site. So knowing that I'd done it on Bomb Beach, which is a couple of suburbs away, yep. I bought a block of land with a house on it with a view to knock it down and put two townhouses on it. Yep. But when I was in Vegas on my little work trip, I watched this late night documentary and, and had this little aha moment going, Luke, you're an idiot. Why are you going to knock down that perfectly good house when you can keep it, renovate it, and just build a new one out the back? Yeah. But I quickly got online, and i tell you, Wi-Fi internet was not a thing back then. You (laughs) had to plug in a cable, and it was about $20 an hour, and it was, you know, and certainly no iPhones to just jump in and have a look. But I I made it work somehow, and I I looked it up, and I thought, that property, it's 600 square metres. It needs to be 630 square metres as a minimum to be able to do that. Otherwise, I've got to relocate the whole house at the front to make it work. So I emailed the agent and said, "Can you get me out of the contract?" He said, "No, I can't. But if you settle on it, I can probably get you an extra thirty or forty thousand dollars." Okay. So I ended up settling on that on that property, paid the fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars stamp duty, listed it with the agent again straight away. And I think he got an extra thirty-five thousand dollars for me.
1: Came out even once, all, once you look at your selling costs. Yep. All,
0: yeah. Yeah. All, all because all because the market was doing so well, and he managed to find me what I wanted, whereas you know something you could build in the backyard and renovate the front house. So that was a big lesson. And once again, I didn't lose any money on that deal. But geez, if I'd if I'd been to Vegas sooner, maybe I could have, maybe I could have <laughs> learned a few things. So there's a lesson in there. Travel more often. <laughs> <laughs>
1: love it, love it. Yeah, so, you, you uh, did you end up doing that development?
0: Yes, I did uh, and, and kept those for a number of years, uh, kept the old house and, and this is another lesson I learnt through renovating um, when you mentioned before 11 days doing a renovation and factoring in your time and, and all of the other costs involved in travelling there. Um, there was another aha moment that happened uh, when I was about 26 or so and I bought that property in Seaford and I was going down there, I was living in Paran at the same at the same time in Melbourne's inner inner east. And I was literally loading up the car, mind you, a two-door BMW that I'd just bought, um, loading up the the BMW every weekend with painting equipment, tools, um, lawnmowers, whippersnippers, you know, you name it. And I was spending my whole weekend down there. And even some evenings, I was down there at the front house renovating it. And because I'm a a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to things, I think, you know, dad taught me from a very young age, if you're going to do something, do it properly. Yeah it's definitely one of the things that's been instilled in me from a very young age. And that came about because when I washed the car quickly and for my two bucks, if it wasn't done properly, they would say, look, if you're going to go to the trouble of washing our car and you're putting your hand out for money, do it properly. <laughs> so Good I only call. had to do that a couple of times. and It was the same the same thing with the lawn mowing. You know, you skipped a bit here. So, you know, very much so with painting and things like that, I'm very much a perfectionist. And I thought, you know, if you want something done, do it yourself. And uh, so I did that and then it, it took me another year or so afterwards to realise, look, if you just paid a painter to come in, yeah. first of all, you would have got your weekends back, but you've just lost six months worth of mortgage payments. Yeah. So the same money that you've spent on mortgage payments you could have spent on a painter had it had it done six months earlier, had a tenant in there, and you could have actually had all of your weekends back.
1: Yeah, false economy. I mean, it's just, not, unusual, just not unusual, pat mate. Myself
0: on, pat myself gently on the on the forehead and said, You're an idiot, what have you done? So <laughs> I think that was the last time I'll ever do that. But um, you know, that was a that was a good lesson in there as well with that whole seaford project is understanding, I guess, you know, that the whole planning and strategy was to build two townhouses. And then weeks later, I realized, hey, I can probably keep the front house and yeah. not have to build a whole other building. Yeah. Um, and then there was also the other lesson in there of, hey, you can you can pay professionals to do certain work that are a lot quicker than you. They'll probably do a better job than you. And, uh, you know, you get all of your time back. And I think one of the things that uh, people don't do with investing is they value their own time. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the big things with, with renovating. I did another couple of renovations on properties after that and and flipped them. Um, and I did a, another renovation with a friend on a, on a property and we kept that. But um, going through the renovation process, uh, a lot of people wrongly assume that, oh, well, I've gone and bought it for 300000 We spent 10000 on it and sold it for three sixty. They think they've made $50,000. But then when you take all your selling costs, your stamp duty costs to get into it, Your holding costs, your renovation costs. Then you've got
1: capital gains.
0: You've got capital gains tax if there's anything left. Yeah. But then you've got to factor in what's your time worth. Yeah. You know, how much do you get paid in your job if you're on fifty thousand dollars a year, calculate your hourly rate and count all of the hours that you spent going to Bunnings, all of the hours you spent putting petrol in the lawnmower, all of the all of the extra little things that have to be done that aren't even on site. You know all of the paperwork you've got to get done for getting permits through or council. Or all of those things yeah. you've got to put an hourly rate on. And I think there's there is that false economy with people wrongly assuming they're making lots of money when they're not. They're and not. even if you make a hundred thousand dollars, then you pay your capital gains tax. Yeah. It, really, the whole thing can be pointless. Um, it's a
1: big risk for a very small return. And and it's the old story. I mean, you probably say the same thing. But I always say, yeah, if you're going to invest, you don't create a second job in the process because what are you actually achieving? If time is your most important asset uh, and you're actually Absolutely. loading up your time uh, to do something that then uh, stops you from doing other things, then what are you actually achieving? Yep.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people, uh, sort of, their, their comment back to that is, oh, but I love property and I'm, I'm happy to do it. And that's fine. I love doing that as well. But I also like having a social life. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not the most social person. I'm quite a private person in my in my own time. But at the same time, you know, there's only so many hours you've got and there's only so many years that you've got. And this is one of my learnings that I got when I was 30 and I took this little mini retirement was, you're not getting any younger, Luke. <laughs> um, you know, and your twenties just goes like that. My teenage years just just went in a flash, and then all of a sudden I'm turning thirty, and I thought my twenties just just gone, just like that. And your thirties just disappeared. And I think the 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 key thing, it sort of hit me at some point was just saying, look, you can't get this time back. You can always make money, but you can't get the time back. Yeah
1: so true, mate. So let's talk about the post-30, uh, so the, the, that was BC. Let's talk about AD, mate. What, what happened post-30? The, you bring all those learnings together. Uh, what was different about the 30s?
0: It did. Well, as I was approaching 30 and, you know, th- thinking that I'm going to die soon because of old age, um, I, um, I, uh, I thought that, uh, you know, during my 20s, I, I was sort of one of those kids that sort of thought – I wanted supercars. I wanted yachts. I wanted fancy houses on the beach that are six levels. You know, I want these massive pools. I don't like. I don't have kids. I don't need that. Um, but I wanted these big houses. I wanted five-star travel. And a, a lot of people think that that's what they want. Yeah. And I wanted all that by thirty. I wanted to retire at thirty. Yeah. But all of these big dreams weren't really goals. Yeah. They were. They were sort of pie-in-the-sky things without any real strategy of getting there. Yeah. And. It didn't mean anything to me. They're things that I thought I wanted, but that didn't mean anything. I couldn't connect emotionally to that goal. Yes. And I think that that was a, that was a big learning. And so what happened as I started approaching 30, I said, look, I've been doing security for a long time. When I moved to Sydney to get a job, that was so that I could get loans for property.
1: Yeah.
0: No other reason, right? I didn't want to do that. Um, but I did it because I thought property is more important than the job. Yeah. My approach to to going to work every day. Well, this is a temporary measure whilst I become a multi-millionaire before 30. Yeah, that's what that's what I was actually thinking. Yeah, um, without any uh, roadmap to get there, I just thought that's what's going to happen, and um, so when I started my business at 25, uh, monitored alarms, I really uh didn't have a long-term view on that i didn't think i'd be doing it at 35 or 40 or 50. i figured it's a means to an end until i can do some other things in property so i started uh putting the feelers out there when i was about 29 about selling the business uh eventually uh went through the process of doing that i actually had a i had a first class Qantas ticket to london on my 30th birthday booked (laughs) and around the middle of may the sale that i had for my business fell over and i was i was devastated (laughs) um and so the the sale fell over it took us a few more months and we ended up selling it to somebody else i had to cancel my my flight to london and and eventually that whole trip just got cancelled um these things happen not the end of the world at the time i was a bit devastated but you know i was yeah. i was getting a chunk of money for selling my business so i thought hey you know i'm happy to wait for that so yeah. i sold the business and that's that's where i really sort of said look I've, I've been through a pretty stressful time running a business is stressful no matter how small or big the business is it's stressful yeah. at different levels yeah and so I, I needed a break um and especially given that the, the deal fell over and you know most of my um most of 2010 was stress for me, I needed I needed an actual break. So I actually went back to Perth for a little while, okay. uh, spent, spent some time with family, yeah. and um, explored a few other options. One of the things that I was looking at doing was opening up a, a Grilled Burger franchise. Oh, yeah. And uh, I went through the process of meeting with Simon Crow, the founder of Grilled, and uh, had meetings back and forth about that. And I thought that was a good model because it had really started picking up here in victoria and they had one store over in wa and you know i thought this is a great option to go back to wa for a bit and maybe do that yeah um after many months of back and forth doing site tests and various other things uh going through all my financials showing them that i had the money to open the franchise they essentially came back and said no didn't give me a reason and then i was out so that kind of Threw me for six a little bit. I thought, oh, that's what I wanted to do. I was really invested in burgers. Oh, well, maybe that's not the way I was supposed to go. Might have been so, a blessing
1: in disguise, though, mate.
0: It absolutely was. Uh, you know, and I'm very grateful for them to saying no to me. And um, <laughs> I think the the key thing is, um, you know, like maybe I've done my burger years at 16. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, for me that was really a good point to say, OK, well, I, I, what am I going to do next?
1: We'll pause part one here before Luke starts to unpack his journey into the formation of his property advisory business, The Property Mentors, and how he can help you on your property journey. So listen out for this in next week's part two of my great chat with Luke Harris, where he takes you through his property approach and unpacks the key components of his new book, Property Fit. Have a great week, and we'll see you then. To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello khgroup.com.au. That's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au. Or check us out at au forward slash invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if
0: you'll die